0: I'm old enough to remember the phrase the nuclear age. With nuclear energy we were going to have abundant cheap electricity pretty much forever. But that dream has somewhat fainted with Three Mile Island, uh, Chernobyl and Fukushima. And in the public eye, nuclear has something of a tarnished issue. And I think we should always make uh, opinions based on information. And besides, this is a fascinating topic. And I can't think of anybody better to uh, talk us through it than Tony Irwin, who is the Technical Director of SMR Technology. Now, we'll explain that acronym in a moment. And Tony is an Associate Professor here at the ANU. And he has over 40 years' practical experience in the nuclear energy field. Uh, Hello and welcome, Tony. And thank you, Rod. Good for interviewing me today. Now, Tony, what's the current global situation with electricity generation from
1: nuclear? So globally, there's 442 power reactors operating worldwide. So it generates about 10% of the world's electricity so in 2018, it generated nuclear generated more than solar and wind combined. So it's it's still a, a major source of electricity generation. There's 57 reactors under construction at the moment. Uh, a lot of them in China. So there's 17 in China, but several of them are, are in new countries as well. Countries like um, Turkey. Um, that have never had a, a nuclear power plant before. And what's the situation
0: in countries like the UK, Britain and, dare I say, Australia?
1: So the UK haven't built a, nuclear, a new nuclear power plant um, since about the 80s, but new construction's now started. So Hinkley Point C construction's started. So that's another new nuclear power plant but they're also looking at these SMRs, the Small Modular Reactors for UK. Uh,
0: Small Modular reactor. Now that's explaining our acronym a moment ago. Can you talk me through the types of reactor that exist? Now I understand there are three and four generations, and where does
1: small modular fit within that? So we, we tend to talk about generations of reactors because it's, it's easy to define them. So Gen 1 was the original prototype reactor. So it's the original pressurised water reactor, PWR and BWRs, the Magnox reactors in the, the UK. These were the early ones. Gen 2 is most of the current fleet of reactors. So the majority of reactors are still PWRs, pressurized water reactors. There's quite a number of, of BWRs as well, um, pressurized heavy water reactors, Candu reactors in Canada um, and, and in India. So that's the Gen 2. Post Three Mile Island and certainly post Chernobyl, the build uh, was much reduced in, in uh, Europe and the US. But. Developments continue, particularly in Asia and places like South Korea. So this is the Generation 3 reactors, more advanced, more safety features. Then what we're looking at now is Gen 4. Now, this is a completely revolutionary design, completely different designs of of reactors, which should have advantages of of, uh, being able to produce higher temperatures, better efficiency... So what's interesting is, is Australia is involved in this development. We're a member of an exclusive club called the Generation 4 Forum. And the reason that the other countries wanted us particularly is ANSTO's experience with, with nuclear materials, um, particularly materials for, for high temperatures and high radiation uses. So there's this new exciting Gen 4 um, just starting now, that the one of the first reactors is just about to start up in in China, a very high temperature reactor. Now the SMRs, there's two types, so some are based on the the Generation Three light water reactors, so they're still sort of small PWRs. Um, but some of them now also will be the generation 4 type reactors, very high temperature reactors, molten salt reactors, this sort of thing. Well, what are the main
0: features of the
1: small modular reactor? Well, the, the light water uh, small modular reactors, because defined as small is less than 200 megawatts electrical output. Uh, the modular means they're factory built, so you can build the whole reactor in a factory, and then you just take it to site and, and install it. Um, so. Well, I'm, I'm, we're sitting in the
0: courtyard here at the ANU, and it's probably, what, 20 metres across to the other side. Can you kind of give me a sense of how physically large this thing would be?
1: So the module. Um, is about 24 meters high and four and a half meters in in diameter. So that's a a light water size of an SMR. Now, the module um, in the ones that we're looking at at the moment sits in a big pool of water. So this can always remove the heat from the reactor. So this gives it this inherent safety. So it would have survived even a Fukushima type of accident because the the heat can always be removed by the large pool of
0: water. So does that mean it's not reliant on pumps or
1: backup uh, diesel generators to move the water through to cool it? Exactly. So it doesn't need backup electrical supplies. Uh, It doesn't need any source of outside water to ensure it's safe indefinitely. Well, why
0: weren't the original reactors built that way? Why did they build them with this vulnerability in the
1: first place? Well, the first thing is that the the, the big reactors have got a lot more heat in them, so it's, it is more difficult to re- remove the heat. But the, the modern big reactors also have passive safety systems. So the Westinghouse AP1000, which is being built in the US and has been built in China, has got all passive safety systems. So even that would have survived a a Fukushima-type accident. Yes, there are limits to what uh, you can
0: handle when nature throws at you with an earthquake or a tsunami, I guess. And uh, are there any nuclear or small medium reactors anywhere in the world at the moment?
1: Yes, interestingly, uh, Russia... Now, Russia used um, small reactors for their icebreakers. So they had this bright idea, why don't we put two of these icebreaker reactors on a barge, a non-powered barge, and then we could locate it in some remote area of Russia and it'd supply electrical supplies and district heating. So this is what they've built. It's got two two 35-megawatt reactors, 70 megawatts of power, It went into operation in December 2019. It's in Pevik, which is the most northern city in Russia. It's really cold there, minus 27. So they really appreciate the district heating that's provided by this reactor and the electrical power supplies. So this this sort of floating power is an interesting concept. Uh, China are also looking at this. So water is obviously a really key
0: component in any generation of reactor. So with one of these small medium reactors, uh, how much water do you use? W- where does it come from? Where does it go to? And is any of that waste water is any of it uh, affected by the nuclear
1: process itself? Well, in a pressurised water reactor, the, the primary circuit that goes through the reactor is a sealed circuit, so the, the radioactive water doesn't go outside the, the reactor. So that the main cooling requirement, as for any power plant really, is for condenser cooling. So that's, that is non-radioactive circuit cooling. With the small reactors, what you can do is to air cool the condenser, so you can reduce the, the cooling requirements by about 75% with, with air cooling. Okay, so it's basically similar to any other heat-based power source such as coal or uh, gas? Yes. Typically, though, the the light water reactors operate at, at lower temperatures than a, a modern uh, coal-fired plant, so it's lower efficiency. But this is where the Gen 4 are of interest because they're going to operate at, at much higher temperatures and can operate at
0: higher efficiencies. Okay, so we, we've talked about the generations of reactor, but what about uh, speculating on some of the more advanced types such as thorium?
1: Uh, well, thorium's interesting um, Thorium isn't a direct fuel, so you can't put thorium in a a reactor and the reactor operates. What you have to do is is to have a a reactor that's powered by a, a fuel such as uranium, and then you put thorium into the reactor, and the uranium bombards the thorium with neutrons, and it converts it to another form of uranium. So it's what's called a fertile material. It can produce uranium. If you get into a full thorium cycle, there's some advantages because the waste products uh, are are less long-lived if you can get to a full cycle. But unfortunately, when you irradiate thorium, you also get other products, some of which are radioactive and make handling of the fuel more difficult. So while um, there's abundant sources of thorium, probably more than uranium, but while uranium is, is still abundant um, at, this, at the moment this, this at least one hundred years of uranium supplies available without sort of much further exploration um, there 's no real push for for thorium at the moment Now I mentioned at the start of our conversation
0: the public perception of nuclear and largely around the accidents at uh, Fukushima and Chernobyl and Three Mile Island and some others, I think. In fact, why those accidents occurred is a whole topic which I wouldn't mind exploring. But first I want to talk about the other thing that people are concerned about, and that is uh, nuclear waste. Uh, What kind of waste will come out of one of these uh, modular reactors?
1: So radioactive waste is produced by by an operating nuclear power plant. The day-to-day operations only produce a low-level waste. So this is typically clothing, cleaning materials, filters and resins. Um, a typical nuclear power plant would produce about 150 metre cubed of low-level waste every year. So that's a couple of shipping containers and that goes into a low-level repository, which is a... Uh, a ground level repository, um, lots of those worldwide there 's plenty of examples of them. The only high level waste is the used fuel so when the fuel 's been used in the reactor um, it 's normally put into a cooling pond that removes some of the the heat and also provides shielding so it'll stay in there for four to five years. And then you've got various options for what to do with the, the used fuel. You can either store it in a dry cask, you can reprocess it which reduces the volume and the radio toxicity of it, or you can dispose of it as a complete fuel assembly. So there's, there's deep geological facilities being built at the moment in, in Finland and Sweden to take whole fuel assemblies. France reprocess their fuel, they extract the uranium and plutonium and they reuse the plutonium in what's called mixed oxide fuel, so that, that saves them some uranium, they, they use it back into their reactors. Or you can just store it on site uh, in dry casks as they are doing in in the US and Canada and, and many countries and a small modular reactor could hold all its spent fuel on site for the the 60-year life of the reactor. What
0: kind of volume? How much of that uh, of the fuel, spent fuel rods, uh, is
1: produced? So it's about 1.5 meters cubed per uh, module per per year. Well, what's that in common terms? Is that <laughs> like
0: the size of a dining table, refrigerator, or a small house, or what? Well, <laughs> So,
1: I mean, the, the number of casks required, it would be sort of about one cask per, per year of, of, of fuel from a, a small modular reactor. So it's a, it's a very small number. It's a um, small area that you would require. OK. Now, another concern
0: that uh, people have about nuclear is, of course, weapons. And we've got the spent fuel rods coming out. What would it take to convert those into a weapon of some
1: sort, even possibly just a dirty weapon? So, when uranium uh, goes into a reactor and is irradiated, um, these various other materials produce. S- including things like plutonium and americium etc and um, we think of plutonium as, as as material for a bomb but when it goes into a reactor and is irradiated it not only produces sort of bomb quality plutonium it produces all the other isotopes and and a, a range of other uh, actinides and this renders its Unsuitable for, for use as a bomb. So you couldn't take reactor fuel and, and use it for a, a bomb.
0: OK. Now, what are some of the constraints on nuclear at the moment? Obviously, we've talked a bit about public perception and the whole question of public licence is, I guess, a complicated one. But there are legal constraints, are there not? Yes.
1: So at the moment, there's two federal laws... Is the Environmental Protection uh, Law um, and the ARPANS Act, and both of those say that you cannot construct a nuclear power plant in Australia. Um, some states also have laws prohibiting. So, before we can start a nuclear program in Australia, the first thing is we've got to, to change these, these laws. So to change a law would really require bipartisan support. So this is the challenge at the moment in, in identifying nuclear as sufficiently important for the future of Australia that we should lift the prohibitions um, and use nuclear in Australia as it is in lots of countries worldwide. Well,
0: I, I'm talking to you, Tony Irwin, who, with a huge amount, vast amount, forty years or thereabouts of experience in the nuclear energy business, what's the skills situation like in, say, Australia? What do we
1: need uh, in order
0: to make a viable industry if we were to do that?
1: Well, it's interesting example for the new Opal Research Reactor. Um, at the time that Opal was commissioning, and I was the commissioning reactor manager for that reactor. Uh, we were still operating the high-far reactor so we needed staff for the new reactor. So what what we did was um, to take young engineering graduates um, and train them in, in nuclear technology. And during the commissioning process they see all the construction of the reactor, they, they know all the parts of it, they take part in the in the whole of the commissioning, so we've now got a, a cohort there, a group of engineers that you know are fully trained nuclear engineers. But what we did in the UK and they're doing in in the US as well is um, refiring uh, existing, uh, retiring uh, coal fire plants, so they're replacing them with nuclear plants and then the staff from the coal fire plants can be retrained for nuclear. Because you remember a lot of a, a power plant, whether it's nuclear or coal, it is the same. So you've got a turbine, you've got pumps, air compressors, heat exchangers, condensers, um, diesels, etc. So this is all the, the same sort of plant. So the operators and maintenance staff are used to this sort of plant. So what you've got to do is to train some of the people um, just for the nuclear part of it. What's interesting for our company is that we get a lot of inquiries from people overseas who say, you know, we'd like to have a job in nuclear in Australia, what opportunities for them? And we say, well, there aren't any at the moment, but... Australia is a very attractive place to to come to work so there's a lot of interest and if we did start a nuclear power program there would be no problem in in getting stuff. Okay well if we started today if you got the the go
0: signal how long would it take to get one up and running in Australia?
1: So so working backwards um, the construction time of an smr is is about three years, so three to four years prior to that of course you 've got to get all the license uh, you 've got to identify the the site you 've got to get community consent because um, it 's important to to have the community behind you for this this sort of project so that 's another four years so you you 're looking at less than ten years. To establish a nuclear power plant in in Australia, if we really wanted to. Right. Well, we have the uh,
0: the practical aspects now. What about the finance and what about the cost? Can you give me an indication of what the whole of life cycle cost for running our getting up a plant and so on would be?
1: Yes. So, what our company. Did was um, commission floor in the U.S. to carry out a cost estimate of of a, a nuclear power plant in in Australia. So this is a small modular reactor plant, uh, a 12 module, 924 megawatt electrical plant, and and that came out at about uh, five thousand Australian dollars. Uh, per kilowatt-hour installed capacity. So to put that into context, um, solar would probably be about 1,000 per, per kilowatt installed, but then you've got the firming capacity, th- the batteries or the pumped hydro and the system costs to go with that. So we think overall, if you look at the total system cost of nuclear compared to renewables, it's in the same sort of ballpark. Now of course you mentioned
0: renewables and we have an existing grid which is well large parts of it are still coal-fired power and gas and so on with renewables emerging.
1: How does nuclear fit in that context? Well we, we see renewables and nuclear working together. I think the future you're really looking at what's the best mix going forward in, in, into the future. So Nuclear gives you reliable power, it's independent of the weather, um, it also provides this important system resilience and, and system inertia, um, is able to restore the grid if you have any, any problems with it. So it's an important component of, of operating the grid. One of the problems with renewables is, uh, for instance, solar or wind has to be in particular locations. The locations are remote from the, the load centres, so you've got um, extra transmission lines that you've got to put in. Um, it, it does get quite expensive. Nuclear could be re- located say, at existing coal-fired sites, a lot close to to load centres, and provide this reliable supply, uh, a low-emission supply that we need for the future.
0: So far we've been talking about nuclear in terms of electricity mostly, but I understand that uh, it might also have a role with some other processes uh, relating to the use of the heat from the reactor, not just uh, turning a turbine?
1: Yes, and um, this is one of the major changes we see for the, the future because as well as low emissions electricity, there's a need to decarbonise other sections of industry, particularly process heat, uh, desalination, transport, etc. So this is where the generation 4 reactors will really come into their own because they operate at higher temperatures. The, the existing light water reactors have got limited process heat applications because uh, the reactor basically is, is working at 300 degrees C. So that limits the number of process applications. You can use it for, for desalination. Um, this country where they use it for some industrial processes. But you could use it for a lot more industrial processes with higher temperature. So, Generation 4 reactors like very high temperature reactors, molten salt reactors operate at much higher temperatures and we could use those for for process heat including importantly hydrogen production and I think this is going to be increasingly important in in the future.
0: Now what happens to a reactor at the end of its life cycle? You're writing a column for us on how to decommission a reactor can, in a few words, uh, explain what's involved with decommissioning. I guess the answer depends very much on the type of reactor you're starting with, right? Right, so
1: reactors um, are designed now for a 60-year life. So at the end of that life, the first thing you do is remove all the fuel and the coolant, etc., And this removes sort of 95% of the radioactivity. So that renders the reactor now safe from an accident point of view. And then you've got basically two options. You can either immediately decommission it or you can delay the decommissioning and then decommission it. So if you immediately decommission it, the advantage is that you've got the people with the knowledge of the reactor, um, you can make the sites available for, for reuse very quickly, but the, the disadvantage is that the material inside the reactor is more radioactive, so you need more remote handling, um, so it's going to be more difficult to, to, to decommission immediately. Um, if you delayed decommissioning, then you've got to do maintenance on the reactor all the time you've delayed the decommissioning Um, but the radiation levels are are reduced so it's better from that point of view. What's happened typically with reactors worldwide uh, a lot of them have now been decommissioned and right back to practically a greenfield site but Typically in America, um, there's been a a sort of delay of around the 10 to 20 years, so they've allowed it to decay partly and then completely decommissioned it. Are, Are small modular
0: reactors any different in this regard to other types? Well, they are smaller,
1: so you know, there's less material. To, but the other thing in now is that reactors are actually designed to be decommissioned. And, and part of your your site license from the regulator, you've got to demonstrate how you would decommission it. Um, there's actually an interesting um, example of decommissioning in Australia because at Lucas Heights sites, there's been more than one reactor um, the old Moata reactor that used to be there, decommissioned, completely removed, it's, it's a completely reused site now, so that was completely cut up um, and it's been completely removed, so that's a total decommissioning, um, and it, the total cost was about $4 million to completely decommission that reactor.
0: Now, at the risk of going down a rabbit hole, do you want to share your thoughts about the accidents? Uh, you've mentioned Fukushima, uh, Chernobyl, or Three Mile. Um, there have been some other accidents of a smaller scale, I believe.
1: Accidents uh, you know, are, are interesting. Um, the public perception is really based on, on accidents, Three Mile Island. Um, nobody died as a result of that. There was very minimal uh, w- radioactive release. I mean, the major problem was that the, the melted the core, so it's it's a, an economic uh, disaster from that point of view. Um, Chernobyl. Now I, I visited Chernobyl type reactors. Post Chernobyl, um, we did work with the Russians to um, uh, show them how to safely operate uh, reactors and and change their safety culture a bit. So I I visited Russia, and Russian engineers came to work on shift with me in the UK to see how we operated. So, I mean, Chernobyl was a type of reactor that wouldn't have been built in the West at all and then operated in a way where they over. You know, overcome all the the safety uh, systems to to do a test, and with disastrous uh, results. So Chernobyl is the the only reactor that's um, that's actually caused any any deaths to the general population. Um, the Fukushima accidents, all the reactors uh, survived the earthquake. They all safely shut down. But then, of course, they were overwhelmed by the tsunami. What's perhaps unfortunate is that the nearest power plant to the earthquake and the tsunami at at Onagawa had a a decent seawall and completely survived. And it was only the Fukushima plant which had an inadequate uh, seawall. And then diesels in the basement that got flooded, so they lost all the electrical supplies, and it was a type of reactor that needed uh, outside electrical supplies and and water supplies to survive. So, I mean, again, they've they've melted um, three cores of, of the reactor. It's a it's a major clean up, but job, um, but nobody died from Fukushima and it's very unlikely that anybody will die from it but obviously the public perception is that there could be this sort of accident so modern reactors are designed to be inherently safe to to always to be able to remove the the heat in the reactor and, and render them safe. And
0: would you like to see the end of gas and coal fossil fuels uh, from the grid?
1: Well, long term, I mean, we, we've got to to go to, to lower emissions. A lot of the coal will be retiring um, in the, the, the 2030s. It's then a question of what do we replace it with. Part of it is going to be renewables. I think it would be really useful if part of that was also nuclear. Nuclear can work with renewables. So all the modern SMRs um, actually load-follow. So the one we're looking at, particularly the New Scale SMR, is designed to load-follow, is designed to, to work with, with with renewables. It's got features in the control systems to enable it to do this. So going forward, I think that the main question is what, what is the best mix of electricity generation you know, in the long term to, to get down to to low emissions. So I can see coal being rep- some of the coal being replaced by nuclear in the in the 2030s. I think that would be useful. I think gas is very useful at the moment as a, a, a standby fuel um, what's interesting to look at is the, the fuel mix in, in South Australia. If the wind's blowing, um, you can have a, up to eighty percent renewables. If the wind's not blowing, you can have eighty percent gas at th- the moment. So gas is um, is a valuable backup at the moment.
0: Now, Tony, we've had a very wide-ranging discussion. I think we've covered most of the things that I was hoping to talk about. Are there any other thoughts that you want to share?
1: I think the main thing for the future is, is being able to decarbonise all of the industrial processes. So it's not only going to be electricity generation, it's going to be process heat, it's going to be hydrogen production. And I think this is where nuclear can really make a, a valuable contribution in the future. Well Tony Irwin,
0: it's a great pleasure and been a fascinating
1: conversation
0: with you. Thank you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you.